0: hi there it's shelby alexander and welcome to the spiritual journey podcast a place where we explore the spiritual nature of this human experience and how to live happy free and thrive together hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of this spiritual journey I am your host as always, Shelby Alexander, and today I am so excited to introduce to you, Priya Shah, our guest. Priya is a lifelong yogi, and she first started practicing yoga as a child with her grandfather who's from India. She's also trained at the University of Michigan as a licensed physical therapist and has went on to become a yoga master, craniosacral therapist, and energy worker, and so much more. She established her daily personal practice back in 2006 after overcoming cancer. And after four years of her daily practice, Priya went on a beautiful journey of her soul back to India. And I'm so excited to have her speak a little bit about that with you today. She lived and studied yoga for three years in India, Asia, and Europe, and has so much knowledge, so much wisdom to share with this world. Her passion of spreading light, and love and deep soul healing for anyone that is interested is so inspiring to me. I'm so grateful to have you, Priya, and I'm so inspired
1: by your journey. Thank you for
0: being here and welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Shelby. Um, I'm inspired by your goddess energy that you bring (laughs) to me too. Sometimes I get a little too... Um, you know Shiva energy as we say you kind of remind me of the Lakshmi energy that life always embodies also
0: thank you thank you you. it's an honor I'm so happy to have you today and I'm so excited to see where this goes but the first question that I always love to ask people on the show is what are the different roles titles or hats you wear in this very human life
1: um well, first and foremost, I'm a mom, um, which, you know, like, I didn't understand until I became a mom that that kind of supersedes everything else <laughs> that's on its own playing field. And I'm a single mom. So I am, you know, living the dream, but also, you know, being a single mom takes on a lot of dimensions of having to develop your masculine and feminine sides even more because you kind of have to play both roles. Um, And so that's first and foremost, Um, you know, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister. Um, I am a seeker. And then that's probably my second most important role after being a mom is I am a seeker and I'm a true seeker. And I travel to all the corners of this earth and all the corners and the dark spots within me to find truth because that's my anchor. And so, um, the second thing, and being a seeker can take on a lot of different, like titles in this Western world of, you know, being a yoga master or an energy healer. But really, what I'm trying to find is the truth. And it's the truth that lays within me and that lies within all of you. Um, and so on that course to become a seeker, I also, you know, trained in Western medicine, and I'm a physical therapist. Um, and I, yeah, one thing I was just realizing the other day is I kind of am a guide that takes people from a three-dimensional reality into a five-dimensional reality. And I don't know if that gets too, um, you know, so that's why when people show up for me, I'm like, I, you know, I am a physical therapist, but that's not what we're doing here. You know, like what we are doing here is really healing you on the physical level, the energetic level and the emotional level. And so really encompassing the totality of what your soul really is in this life and others. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah a tour guide from the 3D to the 5D reality that I we're love all that going to yeah i love that thank
0: you for sharing that and it's so like that is what we're all doing all i say we all in terms of anybody who's really doing this work light worker guide whatever you're right it's it's truth seeking and how beautiful is that that that's like the oneness that's the title that really binds all of this work together Mm -hmm. you know the return to love and we do it with different ways modalities hats whatever but i love that how did you get into this work because what i find and i felt this early on in my journey too a lot of people are like oh wow she's like you know working with crystals and an energy worker and like she must have just always been like low-key enlightened (laughs) <laughs> right. and what you and I both know is that often the teachers of this stuff have gone through, as you often say, the mud, like the serious mud. So how did you get into all of this? What was your life like pre all of this kind of spiritual work?
1: Right. Well, for those that don't know what you're referencing with the mud is one of, um, you know, a recently passed Buddhist teacher, Thich Tan, and he's said a lot of profound things but one of the amazing things about these international teachers is english is their second language
0: mm-hmm. and
1: sometimes they didn't learn it till their 70s like the dalai lama um his holiness and so when they speak in english they speak very simplified and for us that are you know i'm calling myself and a lot of us newbies it's like oh well can take these really advanced concepts and bring them down to our level because their english is not that you know, advanced. Mm. And so his line is no mud, no lotus. Mm. And so it's just a reminder that the lotus, which is kind of like a water lily, and it grows in the really muddy, swampy part of a lake, and it anchors deep in the mud and then grows up through the water, through the water, and then it becomes just this bud. And then you know, with the power of light and love that lotus blossoms, mm-hmm. but it starts in the mud. And so Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching of no mud, no lotus is like a reminder of why we have to go through so much trauma and why we have to experience so many things in life that it's like, why is this happening to me? And it's like, oh, no mud, no lotus. So there's some lotus from every bit of mud that we have on us that's going to start blossoming if we do the work, which is leaning into the mud. So um, when I was 30, I was living, and I'm currently 46, when I was 30, I was living um you know, a typical kind of American life. I'm Indian. I'm half Indian. So I've always had some different influences in myself than other people have maybe grown up in. Um, you know, my grandpa used to do yoga and, you know, for me to see a 75 year old man standing on his head every day, just seemed normal. (laughs) Um, even though most people would think you can't do headstand at 75, but if you've been doing it your whole life, you certainly can. Um, and I plan to, and so, um, I was, you know, working in hospitals and had like, you know, a pretty good egotistical, you know, as a lead physical therapist and working a lot of hours and drinking a lot of, you know, fine wine does that make it better that it was really nice (laughs) bottles of Cabernet I was guzzling not just like you know Boone's Farm but yeah drinking (laughs) a lot and going to like and I was guzzling all these nice drinks at really nice places but you know my liver does not know the difference of a nice wine or if it's done (laughs) at a really nice place it's still toxic and so my toxic lifestyle which was on the outside looked beautiful, you know, like, Oh, wow, look at her like, she's a doing really good working at this hospital. And um, she goes to all these fancy parties. And she's, you know, knows all these big people. And I live in metro Detroit and Detroit and it looked really great. But I was literally dying inside and life had to show me that through cancer and so, um, and it was my second round of cancer. So the first one was pretty benign. It was part of that HPV cervical cancer thing in my twenties. And, you know, the doctors are like, Oh no, it's nothing. It's nothing. You know, it's not nothing, regardless of how cancer shows up. It is a strong message for you to like make some lifestyle changes. So that when I was able to just kind of ignore and keep partying and keep drinking, I was living in New York city at that time. And then, um, but thyroid cancer was a lot less easy to just push to the side you know i had to have thyroid surgery i had to have radiation i had to go on a medical leave and um i had to wake up because anyone that has had cancer knows it is really scary and it is um very humanizing and at a young age you think about dying and like okay, so I'm 30 and I am facing my mortality. And so now I say it's my biggest teacher because through facing my mortality at the age of 30, where some people don't think about it till they're like 70 on their deathbed and then be like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do in this life? I was gifted with cancer that could teach me from a young age. And so I decided what I wanted to do with this life was to not do any of the things I had been doing because they were- making me um sick. emotionally yeah physically and emotionally sick and so i quit my job um i was renting a sweet little home i gave that up um to go do medical relief work in my dad's village which is kind of in north india on the border of pakistan and to do spiritual work and so for 3 years i went through what I call my human blossoming or the opening of my Lotus, Mm. um, coming out of the mud and be, and yeah. And then through that experience of waking up, um, and experiencing my truth and who I really am and some experiences of unity and some experiences of deep pain that I didn't even know. And All of the things that happen on the path um, that don't look pretty, you know, that look like messy crying, that look like throwing up, that look like all the messiness of it, not like this beautiful yogi on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's through that that I decided I want to share more um, truth seeking than just physical therapy. Mm, it's so
0: beautiful. I'm like, so moved by your story. And I love, I love the mud. I love the mud. Cause it's so easy to see a Lotus and love it and be like, yeah, I want that. I want that Yogi on the, I want to be that Yogi on the top of the mountain. But so often people, myself included didn't don't realize like what really goes into birthing that Lotus, creating that deep state of calm, presence, peace, whatever it is you see in that Yogi on the mountain freedom that it is that you want. And I think that's why we call this the path, you know, it's the path from mud to Lotus and mud again to Lotus. It's a very
1: winding, winding path. (laughs) Yeah. Like not linear, not a linear path, not linear. No, (laughs) and.
0: what a, like this week specifically for me, I needed that reminder. Cause I'm like, man, there's some mud here. And sometimes I forget that I'm like, Oh, I've done all this work. I'm supposed to be good now subconsciously. Like that is, that is there. And it's like, no queen, you came here to have a human experience. Like there's, there's mud until there's not mud and we'll see what happens then. Not sure, but
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, Yeah, spiritual ego is real, you know, like, as soon as we unpack some of the mud of the human ego of like, oh, I'm all of these good things, then, you know, the spiritual ego, which I still work with, you know, like takes over is like, oh, now, you know, I have these new subtle awarenesses that I never have. And, you know, spiritual ego is just as real. And then we're off the path again, but we're in a different direction. We've pivoted, mm-hmm. but it's still mud, you know? And so we have to accept everything at every moment and see it as a teaching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I love the perspective
0: that you offer about cancer being one of your greatest teachers. And honestly, hearing you speak, it sounds like one of your greatest blessings. And it catapulted you into these three years of amazing adventure and learning. What was that like the three years in India, Asia, and Europe? Like you go from dropping everything, having cancer, just overcoming it. I'm not really sure on the, where you were on the cancer journey when you departed and went Right. What was it like there? What were your learnings? I'm sure there were thousands.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, because of my Indian background, I have been to India my whole life with my family though. And yeah. so this was my first time kind of packing literally this massive backpack and going backpacking on my own, my own journey. And to be honest, my no one in my family, like, as you know, on the spiritual path, you have to set really strong boundaries because most people are happy with you and your suffering, you know, like they're happy with you having this good career that they paid a lot of money at school for you to get. And they're happy with you going to fancy parties and, you know, eating meat and all these other things. So it doesn't um, even your family, you know, going back to India, I'm going to India and I'm going to go do this charity work. And they're like, no, You know, like you're going to quit your $100,000 job and go work for free, you know? So it doesn't, you know, looking, stepping on the path means setting a lot of boundaries is what it really entails on the emotional level. Mm. So um, India is like no place on earth. So I don't, first of all, think you have to go to India. You don't have to go to anywhere to find yourself, but you do have to create some space in your life. For that transformation to happen. Because if you're staying, you know, working every day and everyone wants you to still be that person, it's really hard to change because you're going to get pushback on all sides. Mm-hmm. So, what any journey of the soul going somewhere, right? Buddha went into the mountains, um, Shiva went into the mountains, I went to India. It just allows space for you to kind of step back from all the roles that you are pretending to be and completely take off your mask. Mm. So you're able to do that here. If you are able to do that here. Um, I wasn't able to, I had to like, just leave it and then reappear as someone unmasked. And, um, so I was through my first year of my cancer treatment, which, um, I only had like stage one C. So it was, you know, pretty local to my thyroid. Um, So I was officially clear. Um, And I do tell people cancer is either you either rebirth or you rebirth in your next life. Mm. But cancer is a death door. And so if you don't want to stay in this body, Um, keep doing what you're doing. And if you want to stay in this body, then you need to rebirth in this incarnation.
0: Wow. it's super powerful.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't have to be cancer. There's all sorts of um, diagnoses that look similar, but any kind of chronic illness is an opportunity of rebirth. And it's not just an opportunity. It's really an ask, like it's Mm -hmm. time for you to rebirth because it's not working for your body. So India is loud and crazy and chaotic <laughs> and um, dirty and in your face. And if you've never been there, you either adapt quickly or you get back on a plane. Because yeah. <laughs> you expect to cry at least three times during your first week there. Um, because it is so too much in every respect of the word too much. There's too many smells. There's too many sounds. There's too many animals. There's too many people. There's just, but through all of this chaos, there is this underlying organization that takes a while to tap into. And then you're like, but there is a deep trust and a deep soul belief and everybody is truly aware that they are on the path, which Mm. is what's different than America. Mm. America looks really organized on the outside, but on the inside, there's like a lot of um, uncertainty. Why am I here? What am I doing? Creating anxiety, mental health crises. Where Mm. India, it's like, they must have a million mental health crises because how can you live there and not have anxiety? But they don't, even though it's so quiet and calm here. Um, because they have the anchor. I mean, and, and this, they're all generalizations. So you have to understand, I'm not belittling anyone in any culture that has a mental health, they struggle. So do I, I'm with you. I have mental health struggles too. And um, But that anchor is just like taught from birth there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, from, on holidays here in America, you drank and on holidays in India, you go to the temple. And mm-hmm. so from a very young age, Like kids are just, they grow up with an anchor. Mm -hmm. And so, because that anchor is so profound in most people in the culture, that even though on the outside it looks like, oh my God, everyone must be just overwhelmed by chaos, they are able to stay grounded because from birth, they every holiday went to the temple and you know, every morning, most Indians have an altar in their home, and they practice and do pujas and do yoga. And it's just, um, it's an it's an instilled lifestyle. And so when you tap into that as an adult, it can feel overwhelming. Because it's like, Oh, my God, I missed out on all these years. But you know, we can play catch up at any moment, Mm -hmm. and start to awaken ourselves. And so India provides you that opportunity to like tap into that, Deep, heavy ground and survive the chaos. And there's just an access point vibrationally, like a key in India to truth that um, is, I think, easier to tap into. That's why people go there.
0: Mm, I love that. And your experience did you arrive and, you know, check yourself into an ashram or what did you do?
1: So, um, so I. My dad's village was destroyed by uh, earthquake about okay. seven or eight years before, and I toured it, I went there, and in, the buildings are already halfway crumbling in India, so to have a 7.8 earthquake come through, everything was destroyed, including the hospitals. so they didn't even have anywhere to take people. And so as a physical therapist, there was a lot of amputations. There's a lot of spinal cord injuries that came out of that. And so I toured the area right after, and they were building their first rehab hospital, like to try to deal with all of these paraplegics. And, yeah.
0: um,
1: and it was under a tree. It was under a tree. They were like making prosthesis and teaching people how to walk. And it was like, kind of like mind blowing the power and the spirit of humanity to overcome and I promised that physical therapist, I said, I'm going to come back and work here for you. And, you know, he probably has heard that a million times. And here's this like, you know, American girl on some tour coming, you know, but I really did promise myself that. And then life happened back in America and I got caught back in the mud of living and being, and, you know, trying to be successful. And when I finally got cancer and stepped away from all of that insanity. <laughs> I, um, so the first place I went was back to that village and, um, they had now completed the first floor of the rehab hospital and it looked nothing like it did. And there was about 40 patients there at a time and it was seven years. So they were through the, you know, initial tsunami of the, um, hur- not the hurricane, the earthquake, sorry. But, um, now they just were the only functioning rehab hospital in the whole Northwest part of India. So it serviced like a hundred thousand villages. Wow. And, um, I kind of showed up and I sent a lot of emails and I tried to call people and tell them I'm coming, but as you know, in India, um, or as you don't know, that doesn't, you know, they're, they're the most like technologically advanced country till you get there. <laughs> and then you're <they're> like, <laughs> okay this is totally low tech because I sent like 20 emails and I still and then they were like oh yeah we did know you were coming and I'm like well an email back would have been nice because I just got a plane from the United States but so I just kind of showed up basically and I was like and that therapist was still there he told them that it was his calling from God to work with these people and um and I just started working You know, like I lived at the hospital and I worked there for about five or six weeks on that first go. And um, it was hard because first of all, being a woman in a very patriarchal society um, was a battle and then being an American woman um, and I'm not a quiet, like, you know, like sheepish woman. Like I have opinions and I grew up in America where women are allowed to speak their truth and, you know, dress a certain way and be a certain way. And then I was entering a very impoverished, very, very conservative part of India by the border of Afghanistan and, you know, Pakistan to put it in relation to the level of conservativeness, right? Cause there's Islamic culture, there's Jain culture, and there's Hindu culture, all three living in peace. But, um, and here comes this like, you know, American woman, that's like a tiger trying to dress up like little sheep. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure I ruffled a lot of feathers. I stepped on a lot of toes. I got a lot of pushback and, um, but it was all done from love. And I think everybody really knew that and felt it. And so, you know, they put up with me and I put up with stuff because when you're volunteering, you work harder than you ever would work when you're getting paid. And then when our shift ended at the rehab hospital, I would go in the operating room because I did surgery till 10 o'clock at night. And I would assist the surgeons that would come from all over the world. And they would only have like a few days. So they would be working like long, long surgical hours. And then I would go to bed at like 10 o'clock at night and get back up and do physical therapy work during the day. So then I went to the mountains to kind of recharge my battery. And I lived in ashrams in Rishikesh, which is the yoga capital of the world. Um, I went to South India and lived in ashrams there. And um, then when I finally, my first year of traveling, I actually wrote a book about, it's called The Evolution of a Party Girl. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, Yeah, I did go to Japan first and then I went to India and then I went to Nepal and climbed Mount Everest to base camp and then I flew back and I got back to America and feel like I totally didn't belong in America anymore. I felt um, vulnerable and so fragile and like I couldn't even leave my house, literally like all the like excessiveness of America after like really working at such a low level of material existence for so long, I couldn't even comprehend the amount of excessiveness that we have in this culture. And it was sad and mortifying for me. So I finally was able to get out of my house to go meet a meditation teacher. My friend lured me and was like, this guy's a meditation teacher. You know, it's fine. I'll be, you'll be with other people who are like somewhat awake and um. I finished my first yoga teacher training too on that first trip. And then after like a few months, I, I did get a job as a physical therapist, making some good money. And as soon as I had like 10, $15,000 in my bank, I was like, I'm going back to India. Like, I don't really feel like I belong here anymore. And I still have work to do. I did a big fundraiser for the hospital and we were going to build a second floor on the rehab hospital. I got my university of Michigan involved and had them send some people because I wanted to get physical therapy students there. So I went back to the hospital. I spent a second year in India. I went even deeper into my soul. I did 21 days of silence. I did a nine day fast. I just went like really, really into the mud even more. Um, And that trip I went, um, yeah. So most of it in India, but always like stopping at Germany. One of my friends from my roommate in India, she was getting married in Germany. So I stopped and uh, spent a few weeks in Germany at her wedding and then got back to America. Still couldn't really stabilize, you know, like, what am I doing here? This is so crazy. Although it was better the second time worked as a physical therapist, 10, $15,000. That's enough to live in India for six months if you're doing it right. Wow. Back to India, back to the hospital. Um, got to see the third floor or the second floor that I had fundraised for be completed and the Um, opening ceremonies for it. Um, and then again, just deeper spiritual work. I spent almost the rest of the time in Rishikesh living at an ashram for a dollar a day. And it was like all the homeless Babas, which is, you know, they would sleep right on my doorstep and, um, Then I went to Bali and, um, on the way home, I became a yoga master in Austria and spent six weeks there. And then I finally felt ready to kind of integrate back into Western life. So
0: what was it that made you feel ready? Because I've noticed like just in a, I don't know, three months in Hawaii, which is not three years in all of these places. There was a moment that I personally felt like, okay, I'm it almost didn't feel like it was real life. Like I was ready to like take the experience I had had and then bring it into quote unquote real life, whatever that means. Like the reality that I've been
1: raised in, I guess is what I mean by that.
0: Yeah. Um, And I'm curious for you, like what made you feel ready?
1: Um, What made me feel ready? I, at that point, like I could tell my divine timing changed And, or they call it maternal instincts, but all of a sudden I had this deep yearning to have a baby. Mm. And so I, you know, through my whole time, I kind of was like, because at this point I'm in my mid 30s, which, you know, most people are like, you know, the biological clock is real. And up to 30, I was like, I'm never having a kid. Around 30, something started shifting after doing these few years of spiritual work. um, It became clear to me that. I did want a baby. And um, what shifted for you with that? I don't know, because I do feel like a lot of women in our American culture do feel that, you know, like back and forth about not wanting a baby and then wanting a baby. And I wish I could put a like finger on what it was, but I definitely had a moment in Rishi cash, which is called the you know, the birthplace of yoga, it's where all the serious yogis in India are living in the mountains. And that's where the Beatles went. And their ashram is uh, Maharishi's ashram is now abandoned. But I used to go there and sit and pray in the abandoned ashram. And um, it was Valentine's Day. And I remember like, really having this like, You know, because you're alone in India and you're like in your mid 30s, like, how am I doing here? You know, (laughs) Valentine's Day, everyone's getting roses and chocolates. And I'm like, you know, living impoverished with like dirty everything and washing my clothes in a bucket and everything. And I'm like, happy Valentine's Day. But I felt more self love actually than I'd ever felt. So that wasn't, I wasn't just kind of being funny. I felt actually more filled up than any Valentine had ever made me feel. Mm. And, um, so I took, took a moment. And so this ashram was abandoned for a long time. So it was pretty run down and a lot of like, you know, just homeless people living there and stuff. And, um, and a lot of international people coming, cause that's where the Beatles had gone. And, um, so I was in this one little spot and it was, I think it used to be kind of like a archway and it still had some form. And I just sat there and it was a beautiful, sunny, warm day. And I, I was like, really wanting to get clear, like, am I supposed to have a baby or not? Because it keeps coming up. And then I had never seen it. And I went to this abandoned ashram of Maharishi a lot. And that time I opened my eyes. And the first thing I saw was a a brick that had fallen off a building. And someone in English wrote, trust And it's like, you have these moments that you don't even really know are going to be moments. And I'd sat in that spot, like, you know, many times and meditated. And then I was like, this feeling that I have to want to have a baby hasn't gone away. And it keeps um, actually getting kind of louder. Mm -hmm. And the message from God I got was trust. And so I decided, I guess on that Valentine's day, um, in that abandoned ashram that I was going to trust that, that yearning. Mm, I
0: love that. It's so beautiful, but I don't
1: think it, you know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it is going to look that black and white for people. (laughs) So I'm not trying to say, like, if you don't have that moment, you know, like, but I do think when we don't know what to do, we do have to deeply sit in silence for ourselves. And Buddha reminds us, right? Like, it took Buddha seven years of sitting with nothing till he experienced truth. And so I remind all of my clients that, like, if you don't know what to do, don't move to action because that's just going to create more mud. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't know what to do, you just sit with yourself. And at some point something will shift and then you'll say like, okay, there's been a shift. And usually it's something subtle, but palpable.
0: Yeah. I mean, even that the moment that you share, I actually feel like those are happening around us all the time. It's just that the noise is too loud to to hear it or to to see it so the more that we get quiet as you're saying the more that we turn down the music we can now hear the whisper we take off the glasses we can see the trust brick you know like they're here happening all around it's just that there's too much in between us and our ability to receive it usually that blocks it
1: yeah static i mean and our whole culture is built on that static you know capitalism is static really Like, if people all got silent nobody would be out buying and you know doing all these things that create capitalism
0: totally totally so you come back with the yearning to have your daughter right We now know that you have, and as I'm talking back in the
1: mud, back in the mud, (laughs) back in the mud again. Yeah, (laughs) here full circle, (laughs) right? So, you're like, Oh, I've attained, like, you know, at that point, I had experienced unity consciousness, I was seeing auras, I was definitely functioning on a completely different vibrational plane that I had ever even known existed. And you know, I mean I don't want to get into all the mud but um I'm a single mom so yeah like it doesn't matter that I was seeing auras and did clearly mm-hmm. know that unity is real. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I still had to go back in the mud
0: mm-hmm.
1: of um relationships are entanglement
0: totally and always our teacher and in, re- in helping reveal and walk through our karmas, heal right. our karmas, right?
1: Yeah. And some of it is, you know, at that time, um, you know, I was still kind of caught in the duality of life of like being in a really spiritual place and really wanting that to be my truth. But, you know, then there's this whole material existence too. And finding someone who's um, spiritual, mm-hmm. <laughs> finding a man that's spiritual is as most women on the path know is no small quest <laughs> and finding a man that's spiritual and um not completely broke <laughs> yep. well. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah which i don't know if i worked on either realm but so you know it was it, it's it's just back in the mud and even though you've done all of your work um you know it, it doesn't mean That everybody else has in fact very few people have
0: i love what you're bringing up because especially about the wanting to live kind of in the land of the spiritual and also have this you know be a parent like one of the most human things we can do almost animalistic you know like so human like procreating and raising another human like that's something that i in my journey, have struggled with that duality for so long, and even hearing you talk today, I'm like, yeah, you know, our honeymoon. I want to go to Bali. I'd like to stay there for two more months, like forever, <laughs> my <or> for forever, <laughs> exactly. And yet, like, there's so much beauty and richness and and spirituality, God source love, learnings, teachings, karmas to trek through here in my little cutie cottage in Northern Michigan. So how have you, what are your thoughts on that? I don't even know what my question is really, but like managing those two, um, desires or yeah. Right, managing reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the duality. duality, the duality is thick and it's real, you know, like, cause I live in this world. Um, and I live in this like, kind of, you know, I still have to make money and I have to, you know, and I still go out to dinners and, you know, I do all these things. But I for me, the key is just sending really I've learned about really healthy, strong boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so um I stopped eating meat 17 years ago when I got sick with cancer. I turned to plant-based. and I stopped drinking alcohol like I've been, you know, up and down with alcohol but 3 years ago was a hard stop. Marijuana a few years ago, hard stop. Lately caffeine, you know. So everything just starts to and so when when those um things start to fall off. I think every time something no longer feels aligned with you, you have to clearly set a boundary there. Mm. And um and that means sometimes loss of friends that sometimes means loss of, you know, parties and that whole group that, you know, you'd go to fundraisers with, or you went to a bowling. I went to a bowling alley because I used to bowl and like, I just looked around and it was sadness is all I felt in my heart. And so I had this crew, you know, at some point I was on like the hospital bowling team, you know, with some other physical therapists. And I was like, I just. You know, so I got invited to a few things and I was like, you know what? It's not me anymore. Thank you so much. Like maybe we'll go on a hike together someday, but Mm -hmm. I think boundaries is how we live in that duality and stay on the path, which Mm -hmm. is, um, and then eventually those boundaries, you know, people keep calling and calling and you're not interested anymore. They will fall off. And so it can be, um, there's a lot of loss on the path. And then new people show up because once you make space for new people. So Mm -hmm. now my tribe is pretty much people all on the path. I still have a few people that I backpack with that still go out and drink. And, you know, I just be the designated driver. Um, But, you know, everyone with age usually changes anyway. Um, And so I boundaries is really how I live in that duality of like, saying clear no's and not putting myself in situations anymore that don't feel good in my heart so how to do that with motherhood (laughs) (laughs) I mean the answer I think is still the same boundaries and love and all the boundaries like when I was younger I used to think boundaries were protected with anger and that made me like a really raging teenager and now I realize that boundaries are actually held with love And so even though when you have a boundary, there's still a softness in my heart, like I still love you. I just, it's not me anymore. Um, So I don't know if that even answers your question. Yeah, it does.
0: And it's super helpful because I can, I could almost feel like collective sadness around. I'm not going bowling anymore. Like people are, and I know this from coaching, people are so afraid of setting boundaries because they're afraid to feel that loss. -hmm. That you talked about. But what is on the other side of that loss is a way richer life that is more aligned with our true selves than we could have ever imagined. So it's, I hate to think of it as like the toll, because I don't think that it has to necessarily be that way. In the loss, there's also beauty, you know, there's a completion. But for sure, in the Western culture, like completions, endings, death, like this is not something that most people are very comfortable with or spend even want to spend time talking let alone thinking about so um yeah like loss with the loss that's really a seed for rebirth right you know with cancer it's a seed for rebirth mm-hmm. you know and i think that's so so beautiful i am curious how I know we're going to start wrapping up because of time, but I have a couple more questions for you. I'm curious how in your modern life as mom, like what's a real boundary like that you're playing with setting, like something that's like real and hard and human. And how are you navigating it?
1: Um, What's a real? Okay. Well, God puts a spotlight and motherhood's a spotlight on anything you're not good at. So, boundaries are something that, you know, I used to go out and drink way too much and anything I did was excessive. I have a naturally addictive personality. And so, boundaries are the spotlight that motherhood has taught me. But I'm, you know, putting boundaries around your morning practice, right? Like, Guy is welcome to join me when I do yoga and she has her own yoga mat. My daughter's name is Gaia. And, um, but that's my time to do yoga. And when we do yoga, we practice, we can put music on, but we practice in silence. So she wants to like, you know, little kids talk all the time. And, um, so just like those are, that's like one real life. Like when my yoga mats out, like you're welcome to join me and we can play music. And sometimes we play her music, which is like, you know, listening to like <laughs> Mary had a little lamb while I'm practicing yoga. Or then, you know, we try to switch on and off, you know, like or we listen to my music, which is way better, of course, <laughs> for yoga at least. Um, and so but she knows that, you know, yoga is mama's time. And so even though she doesn't participate that often, she does plant plants plant seeds, because sometimes I'll see her, but it has to be on her terms, like we'll be like just doing something and I take her to the temple, and she'll just spontaneously start practicing yoga. So Even though she rarely practices with me, I still feel like those seeds are planted. And she also has some boundaries like around my meditation, you know, like she sees me meditating and she'll sometimes open the door and see me meditating and be like, oh, and she'll just shut the door. Mama's meditating. Oh, okay. Um, and that's taken some time, right? Before it's like jump right on me, you know, like I she would start breastfeeding when I'm meditating, you know. And you know, you have to give allowance for that and make the boundary with love. But now that she's, you know, around five is when she started like shutting the door again and be like, oh mama's meditating. Um, so, you know, it takes time boundaries. Don't like, you don't put them up and they stay, you, you put them up, you put them with love and they get, yeah. And they, they have to be fluid, especially with motherhood, but be consistent. You know, like, like we have to be with our practice. It's not that I have, you know, a good yoga practice every day. I have 10 terrible yoga practices. And then I have one where I get a little taste of peace and, and then it's like, okay, that's why I'm doing this work. And then I have to do 20 more yoga practices before I get a piece of that inner divinity. Mm -hmm. But the key is to just show up and set the boundaries that you can show up. And then um, eventually something starts to shift, just Mm -hmm. keep showing up.
0: Beautiful. I needed so many of the reminders you've shared today and I'm so grateful. I'm like commitment to showing up for ourselves. Like it shifts everything. It shifts the place we come from, the energy we give out to the world, like everything, our reality, all of it. It's so beautiful and inspiring.
1: Right, and, and oh, I just wanna say one thing, if there's any, because um, moms that are listening that are breastfeeding, the one thing I did is when my meditation became my breastfeeding time, as you'll see breastfeeding is nothing like a beautiful hallmark experience. It's like intense and it's every two hours and it's nonstop. And so I just started, um, and I got advice from a yoga teacher, like make that your meditation time. And so I started when I would breastfeed, I would just, um, repeat my mantra, use a mantra this is my meditation style. And, um, then I was like, oh, it's even infusing in my milk then. And, you know, like, oh, cool. so, um, I started, you know, so you have to be, you have to be real, right? Like I'm sure the yogis in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra didn't talk about meditation during breastfeeding, but that's a great time to meditate actually.
0: Oh, that's so, I love that It's because it's real, it's real, it's real, it's real life. And I have to imagine too, that if we reincarnated into these human bodies, we didn't just come here to be only spirit. We came here to be the human and the spirit and mixing practices, mixing meditation with breastfeeding again, like so mammal, right? mammal, you know, like there's gotta be Samadhi in that too.
1: Right. I mean, we came here to go on the ride, right? We didn't come here to like take birth and then die. We came here for the actual ride, you know, to go on the canoe trip. And so we could drive and get to the, (laughs) the you know, and it's a lot faster, but we came for the adventure of life. Yeah. We came here to do it. And so we have to embrace everything as part of the ride. And that means the mud, that means the beautifulness. And then we have to try to incorporate it into, um, truth-seeking and yeah. especially being integration is what's different i think about the way i'm living as a yogi that's different you know because i'm not living in an ashram i am a yogi a yogini living in the real world that's working um and the work i do is spiritual work i see clients i do craniosacral i do soul work um and you know, being a mom and, you know, going to birthday parties, but so I'm integrating where I'm not in the ashram, but the key is those boundaries and, um, to always be true to really my priorities, which is motherhood and truth seeking.
0: I love it. You're so clear, crystal clear. And it's such a like pleasure, delight and honor to, hear your wisdom, your truth speak, your shares, your knowledge, you have so much of it. And I'm so, so grateful. And my last question for you, for everyone, is to just hear you speak a little bit about what you're currently practicing, like what you're currently learning and practicing. What are you chewing on?
1: So what am I chewing on right now? Um, So I'm learning about the Akashic Records is Mm. what I'm really into right now. So the Akash is the fifth element in yoga, earth, um, water going from the dense earth, water, fire, air. And then the last element, which has always been a little unclear to me, which is called the Akash. And it's the ripple and the vibration that connects everything and everyone. Mm. And it's not that the Akash is out there. It's actually going deep, deep, deep into our soul, because in our soul, we have the vibration of everything we've ever said and everything we've ever done. Mm. And so this Akash has made me more present about everything I say and do, realizing it's creating a ripple that I can access and anyone has access to. Um, so that's what I've been doing in my personal studies is um, I took a nine hour class and I am doing another class and just trying to practice opening my Akashic records before I um, meditate and um, I'm drinking a lot of cacao mm-hmm. and practicing with some shamans and studying Um, shamanism and secondary chakras is what I'm also exploring right now, which are um, the chakras on our arms and our legs, not just our primary. I work with 12 primary chakras, but I'm getting deep into the 12 secondary chakras that are in our arms and legs. Um, And from a craniosacral perspective, I'm also taking courses in visceral manipulation. So looking at actually each organ of digestion, And how to reestablish the craniosacral rhythm in each organ individually instead of just, um, because if the block is in the organ, um, getting really specific, really Mm -hmm. specific about uh, my craniosacral practice. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm also water fasting, I eat five days a week, and I'm on water two days a week. I've been doing that for years. Well, water fasting I've been doing for years, 24 hours a week was my teaching out of my yoga master training. Yogis eat six days a week is what they told me. And I said, okay. Um, And so that day of rest, like, which is in all different religions, that there is a day of rest. Mm -hmm. Um, but the truth of it is in yoga, it also includes resting from food. Yeah. And so sharing water fasting with my clients and sharing water fasting with the world and its power to transform. It's almost like a hack, you know, like the amount of transformation that can happen during a water fast is like exponentially more and quicker than can happen when you're on food.
0: Yeah, and I think so- that should be our next podcast topic because okay. I had the pleasure of, of like doing these water fasts with you. And it is just everything you just said catapulted my life into a different dimension, like quickly. And I love stuff that works fast. Like I love efficiency (laughs) and not a lot does
1: the practice. I know it's long and it's slow, but water fasting does, I think, speed it up.
0: Yeah. It's super powerful. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Is there anything you want to share with people about what's coming up in your world and how they can work with you?
1: Um, So if you're far away, the only thing I'm really offering virtually is the water fast. We're going to do it on the solstice. Um, And I like, I just did a water fast on the equinox and on the solstice um, because the energies of the planet and the vibration is really supporting transformation at that time. And that's what water fast does. It's a fast path to transformation. I
0: love
1: it. And so that will be, I think, June 20th through 26th. And, um, no, one's going to be fasting the whole six days, me included, but we are going to be in that time of cleansing. And, um, for people that are new, they're going to try like a 24 hour fast, or some people are going to try a 48 hour fast. I, um, will probably do a five day water fast, but I don't want it to feel intimidating. You know, it's, it can just be a cleanse, you know, but, um, I, I try to encourage everyone to get to at least 24 hours of water and just feel the shift that happens after just one day of like giving your body, you know, and some people are like, I'm 40 some years old and I've never gone a day without food. Mm. And I think that's the case for most of us. So like, let's see what happens. And I think you'll be surprised with how much you soften and you connect back to your humility. Mm. Um I and locally in Detroit I offer yoga nidras and I couple it with mama cacao mm-hmm. who's been one of my so graceful fun. loving teachers. Yeah, so I have one coming up um May 20th in Ferndale and I've one coming up June 10th in Bloomfield Hills um and for people that are super local I also see clients And that's where I do a full energy healing of 12 primary chakras, 12 secondary chakras. Um, We clear all 12 meridian lines, 12, 12, 12, and uh, deep craniosacral work and um, checking on, you know, the Akashic and yeah, just stepping your soul back on the path and moving you to the next one a tour guide
0: to the 5D. You are a tour guide to the 5D. I love that. You are all that and so much more. And I have to just tell people like, I'm now fasting 24 hours once a week on Mondays. That's the day that works for me. And that's totally come from our time together. And I'm so grateful. And I think I was seeing you every other week, if not almost every week for a handful of months when I was in Detroit and so if you are local I'm waiting for you to do this work virtually like if and when there's a day I'm I'm at I'm first in line ready and waiting um but it is really so powerful so powerful the the alchemy of energetic work and healing with the cranial sacral and physical therapy background and crystal alignment and all of it. It's like such a beautiful experience and so transformative. Like I walked out feeling different in a positive way, literally every single time, more connected to my truth, my soul self. And to me, (laughs) that is like the greatest gift you can give someone. So I really honor you and your your work and I'm so grateful for the path that you've tracked to be able to give this to other people because it is so powerful.
1: I'm so thankful for you and sharing your message and all the courage to like put yourself out there in this way because um you know, I know it's taken you a lot to get to this point of yeah. speaking your truth and you know, your way of speaking is so graceful. It's so inspiring. You just the words are like music when they come off of you. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're using that music to like share the message of truth. So thank you so much, Shelby. It's been an honor to share space with you and to um, really share our souls because that's kind of what we do when we're on the table is we're both completely exposing our inner selves.
0: Totally. Thank you, love.
1: This has been such a
0: joy today. For those of you who are as obsessed with Priya as I am, or even a a small bit intrigued about what it is that she does, I have all of her information in the show notes below. So you can contact her, reach out, sign up for her amazing uh, monthly newsletter. It's so, so great. I love getting that in my inbox. And you can be in the know of all this other amazing stuff that she's got going on. Honor and a privilege, my dear.
1: Thank you so much, Shelby. See you on the path.
0: See you on the path. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of this spiritual journey. I'm so grateful to host this show and feel so, so honored and privileged to have guests like Priya Shah join us in such beautiful conversations. I wanna send a personal invite to you to really consider if you were at all intrigued about what Priya said uh, in regards to her water fasting opportunities that are coming up, um, to take a look at that. I will be joining her and her group for this summer, the 2022, June, summer solstice, water fasting, uh, kind of at home retreat, I guess you could call it, that she's leading. And it's going to be a remarkable experience. I have incorporated water fasting in my life ever since meeting Priya and have committed to 24 hours per week of fasting. And it is really incredible. It has changed my life. It has been an incredible practice. Um, And I also sometimes include 48 hours. So... It's so important for the body, mind, spirit to get these moments in our lives to really cleanse ourselves from the things that no longer serve. And when we remove stimuli like our phones or the TV or people in our lives or food to go really, really um, kind of dramatic, we can have really powerful energetic shifts. And that has been my experience. So if you are like i am ready to go i am i am interested in like doubling down on my practices and deepening and learning more about myself and signing up for a practice that feels like you're ready for a big shift i highly recommend you check out her her water fasting retreat that she'll be leading this summer. I can't wait. I'm stoked. Every single time I do it, the transformation is just mind-blowing, and if you have a relationship with food that you're like, I don't know, man, that feels like a lot or that feels hard or I've had trauma with food, you know, anorexia, bulimia, what have you, Priya is an amazing guide for that, and she's also been bulimic in this lifetime. so not to push it on you further. and We want to do these things for the right reasons. But if that was something that was calling to you or was intriguing to you during this episode, I really encourage you to um, look into that a little bit more with her specifically as a guide because I found her to be incredibly healing when it comes to food and fasting. So I will be there. Can't wait to have you join me. And I also just wanted to say thank you again for supporting these podcasts. This week, I'm recording my 20th podcast and it's still in its infancy. I'm learning a ton, but it feels super exciting to be out in the world, having these conversations that totally uplift my heart. And I hope they are medicine for yours as well. If you're loving these episodes and want more, from this show. I would love to invite you to support this podcast. In the show notes below, you can see a link where you can subscribe to supporting this podcast monthly. There's a bunch of different options at the the lowest level. I think it's 99 cents a month. Any contribution that you feel guided to, I would be so, so grateful to receive. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week. Big love always.